Good morning. We are in Luke 22, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 54 through 62. Luke 22, beginning in verse 54. And as you turn there, and uh, you look again up front, you probably notice that there's some progress being made. Got a fresh coat of paint, got the frames off the screens, new ones coming as I understand it. Back wall's been uh, uh, plastered over and textured and a fresh coat of paint and uh, anyway, it's coming along. Uh, New panels are coming, new lights are coming, new cross is coming. So for those of uh, you that are on this project, uh, big kudos, we're grateful. All right. Uh, Luke 22, beginning in verse number 54, and we'll take it to 62. Hear God's word. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Thus far, God's word. In a number of different ways, the Bible is like other books. And uh, the Bible is like other books in the way that it's composed. That is to say, it's Uh, filled with different genres or styles of writing. So there's poetry and there's prophecy and there's history, among other things. Historical writing is often composed of narrative passages that tend to develop according to the same pattern. So at first, they uh, all begin with the stage being set to get... Uh, who, what, when, where, and why in in some way, shape, or form there. Then the action begins to rise as the plot develops and uh, uh, things start to thicken. Uh, That leads to the climax, which is the dramatic high point of the narrative, and then uh, the reset button is hit and everything is moved on to the next story. Well, as we've seen over the months, uh, the book of Luke is packed with narrative. And so following that that common pattern of development, uh, here's how our narrative passage for this morning unfolds. 
Uh, the stage is set for us in verses 54 and 55. Then in 56, through the first half of 60, the action begins to rise. Uh, the climax occurs in the second half of verse 60 and verse 61. Then we get to verse 62, and things move on to the next account. Now, the main character in this narrative is Peter, clearly so. His name, or a pronoun that points to it, pops up 22 times in these eight short verses. So, uh, this is undeniably all about him. And what we'll see uh, in this passage about Peter is his protracted denial of Christ. Now, to be sure, uh, we'll see Peter follow Jesus when all the rest have deserted him. That's a good thing. And, and we'll see Peter doing this after declaring back in verse 33 that he would follow Jesus to prison, yea, even to death. That's also a good thing. But we'll also see Peter's daring devotion fall flat when he not only denies knowing Jesus, but any knowledge of Jesus, and that is absolutely remarkable. Then comes the tears and the bitter disappointment and the grim end to this account, which is really the, the first of three hammer blows which Jesus endures here in this section, the first one being Peter's denial of Jesus, the second one being uh, the soldiers mocking of Jesus, that's in 63 and 64, and then the third blow being the religious leader's conviction of Jesus, that's in 66 through 71. And next week, uh, Junior is going to cover for us uh, blows two and three, so that's what's uh, around the corner. So this is a sad passage, and it does not end on a happy note. So the question is, what is there to learn in all of this? Well, there are at least two things, and they are our uh, main points or lessons for this morning. Lesson number one, we are Peter when it comes to sin. We are Peter when it comes to sin. We all sin, and we all sin big. Now, I know some of you heard that and you thought, yeah, well, I, I confess to being a sinner, but I wouldn't say I've ever really sinned big. Well, C.S. Lewis would take issue with that assertion at the end of chapter 2 in his book, Mere Christianity. Listen to what Lewis has to say. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. <laughs> that is seated in our heart. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasures of power, of hatred, and who's not guilty of at least one or more of those? But Lewis goes on. But there are two things inside me competing with the human self. They are the animal self, which has to do with all of our instinctual uh, temptations, and the diabolical self with all of its spiritual uh, temptations, the ones that are seated in our heart. The diabolical self, Lewis asserts, is the worst of the two. 
That's why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, Lewis concludes, it's better to be neither. So lesson one, we are Peter when it comes to sin. But lesson number two, we are Peter when it comes to being forgiven. Over the years, the great struggle that I've had uh, with forgiveness is that Jesus would actually forgive my sin. Now, uh, in theory, uh, in principle, Jesus' forgiveness of sin, I, I got that. Jesus' forgiveness of your sin, I can accept that. But Jesus' forgiveness of my sin, I live on the other side of my eyeballs. I know what goes on in my head. And it just doesn't always add up for me. And yet the fact of the matter is, for those who place their faith in the Lord for the absolution of their sin, Jesus forgives. Period. Jesus forgave Peter's sin. We're going to drill down on that in a moment. Jesus forgives my sin, as difficult as that is sometimes to uh, embrace, and Jesus forgives your sin, and that's good news. To be sure, Luke wants us to understand the anatomy of Peter's denial. He does that in detail here. We're going to look at it, but Luke also wants us to understand the certainty of Peter's forgiveness and our own. Wouldn't it be nice to go home this morning certain of your forgiveness from sin? All of it. And the weight that comes with the guilt from that sin. All of it. And to find a future and a hope before you. Well, you can't. That's the way forward this morning. That's where we're going to end up. So uh, fasten in, hang tight, and here we go. Let's dig in by beginning to consider the fact that we are Peter when it comes to sin. Here's how the stage is set, verses 54 and 55. Luke mentions two main things. The first one there in verse 54, Jesus is seized and led away. Now that that term, seized and led away, is a technical one. The, the idea being that Jesus is neither being given special treatment, he's not being handled with kid gloves, he is being uh, apprehended like a common criminal right here. And he's led away from the garden to which he took the disciples after the uh, Passover meal in which he ministered to them and prayed for them as well as himself. In fact, if you weren't here last week, you really need to get online and watch Kenny's uh, excellent treatment of that time in the garden. You can find it at gracevfree.org. So Jesus is uh, seized. He's led away from this scene, and he's taken to the house of the high priest, where we notice there in verse 55, there, there is a courtyard in the middle of which is a fire uh, feature, as we would say. Uh, Jerusalem, in terms of its elevation, is at about the same height as Henniger Flats, 
which is just above Pasadena. <clears throat> if you're driving west on the 210 freeway, you'll see it jutting out to the south with a, uh, a beautiful stand of trees uh, there on top. That's Henniger Flats. That's the elevation of Jerusalem, which means it's high enough to snow in the winter and require a nighttime fire in the springtime. And so that's why a, a fire has been set here in this account. And the structure to which Jesus is taken, this, this residence, it, it's not a house in the way you and I live in a house. It's more like a villa or, or even a palace. It's the seat of uh, a, a royal dignitary, if you will. So that's the first thing that Luke mentions is he's setting the stage here in this passage. Second thing, Peter follows Jesus to the place where he's being led. And we would expect that, right? I mean, Peter has been a privileged follower of Jesus. He, he's one of uh, uh, the three who are most closely associated with Christ. He's one of the two on whom Jesus especially relied as the walls began closing in on his ministry just a couple of weeks ago. Peter's also proven not only to be a privileged follower of Jesus, but he's earnest too, right? Back there in verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So it's no surprise that we read there in verse 55, when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Doesn't seem to indicate he was on the periphery. He was right there in their midst. He'd embedded himself with the opposition, which was a crazy place for him to be due to this one fact. Peter had failed to pray. He'd failed to pray. Verse 31, Jesus warned Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And that's why in verse 40, Jesus exhorted Peter and the other disciples to pray that you may not enter temptation. And of course, at that point, the temptation was to desert Jesus. Um, in verses 41 through 43, Jesus follows his own advice, prays for himself, and as we see there, he was strengthened by way of his prayers. But once he was finished, you go down to verse 45, he came to the disciples and found them not praying, but sleeping. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. At which point Judas arrives, Jesus is arrested, and the prayerless disciples, but for Peter, all go away. They flee. The jaws of temptation are an unlikely place, an improbable place from which to flee sin. I noticed this the other morning when I was in Matthew 14 along with some of you uh, in the church Bible reading plan. Uh, there we were reading about Herod and he was overtaken with sexual temptation. Remember that. 
And in the heat of that temptation, he was robbed of any good judgment so that he makes this foolish promise that ends up requiring the head of John the Baptist and left Herod feeling sorry and grieved and distressed over what he'd done. That reminded me of Judas Iscariot, at whom we looked two or three Sundays ago, who was also overtaken, but uh, in his case, by greed. You remember that? By greed. And the intensity of that greed robbed him of any good judgment, such that he makes this foolish agreement with the religious leaders that ends up in Jesus' arrest, leaving Judas convicted and remorseful, and as we learn in Matthew chapter 27, dead. Again, the jaws of temptation, once you're there, are an improbable place from which to flee sin, an unlikely place from which to flee sin. So how do we guard ourselves against those jaws? Well, what does Jesus say? In the garden, he said, pray. Pray that you may not enter temptation. Back in chapter 11, when the disciples asked him how to pray, what did Jesus say? He said to pray and lead us not into temptation. In other words, keep me far away from that point at which I get locked by the jaws. So when it comes to temptation, our front line of defense, not our only defense, but our front line of defense is prayer. Our best protection against being sifted by the adversary. That's what prayer is. Which naturally leads to the question, how's your prayer life? which was the question that came up among the men in uh, the grace group to which I belong as we uh, grazed on tacos uh, two weeks ago today. So uh, over that dinner, we decided to encourage each other to become better prayers. Now, I could hold you at arm's length and, and, and tell you uh, how that went, or I could have you come and look over my shoulder and read our text thread as to how that's gone. Let me, let me have you do that. I'll, I'll just read how that's uh, gone over the last couple of weeks. Uh, names expunged from the thread here. First fella, not me, writes, hey guys, just reaching out to see how everyone is doing with the two-week prayer challenge. New guy. Beginning my prayer with, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Thanks, so-and-so, for that recommendation on Sunday. Back to the initial guy. I agree, that is a great way to focus your thoughts on the one you're praying to. We'll have to share that one with the kids during our family prayer time. New guy. I'm making myself pray, if even briefly, before I get out of bed each day, and that's an improvement for me. Also trying to conscientiously use the things I see around me to lead to quick prayers for my family as I go through the day. Earlier guy. 
thoughtfully praying the Lord's Prayer the last couple of days, another way of seeing him in his proper place as I go to prayer. New guy. I'm praying for you men this morning after reading in Psalms. Psalm 19 in particular is a beautiful unpacking of the fear of the Lord. Second guy again. I'm still batting a thousand on the pray before rolling out of bed concept. It's not deep, but it's helping to focus my priorities for the day. Almost forgot today, but remembered as I started to sit up. First guy, press on so-and-so. Thanks for your example of perseverance. New guy, thanks for the updates, guys. Time to check out Psalm 19, and it's gone on since then. So, with who or with whom can you team up to encourage each other in prayer? It's the front line. It's the front line against temptation. It's the front line against that temptation by which you are most easily sucked into the jaws of sin. As the examples of Herod and Judas Iscariot, and now Peter remind us the jaws of temptation are an improbable place from which to flee sin. So, stage is set. Now let's see how prayerless Peter, who had privately committed himself to Jesus back in verse 33, now stands up uh, under that commitment uh, in a public setting here in these verses. Uh, the action begins to rise. Now, beginning in verse 56. And we're going to see it, it rise in three stages here, each one featuring an accusation leveled by somebody seated around the fire, followed by a denial uh, issued by Peter. So in scene number one here, the accusation is leveled by a servant girl. And uh, the fire at this point has been sufficiently stoked uh, they've been sitting around it long enough so that it's not only warming them, but it's illuminating their faces so they can see one another. And uh, verse 56 here begins by revealing that the servant girl, she, she notices Peter. It says as she sat in the light, she was looking closely at him, intently at him, New American Standard, staring at him, New Living Translation, peering at him, J.B. Phillips. So she's really bearing down. In fact, her gaze reminds me of, of someone about whom it was said, when I met this person, he looked right in my eyes, through my head, and drilled holes right in the back of my skull. <laughs> That's this girl a penetrating gaze. And so there in verse 56, it continues. She's looking closely at Peter, and she says, this man was with him. This man was with him. To which Peter immediately replies, like some guy who's just stepped on a hot coal. Uh, immediate, loud, harsh, there in verse 57. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. Now, there's three things in that short little response that are especially disappointing. Number one, he refers 
to this accuser as a woman. Impersonal response. In fact, it carries with it a reprimanding or a demeaning tone. It's not good form at all. Number two, the word denied. But he denied it. Replies decisiveness. Uh, Peter's decision to follow Jesus back in 33 was decisive. But his decision to deny Jesus here in 57 is equally decisive. So he's already spinning out of control. He's, he's about ready to go into free fall. Third, the wording here is such that Peter not only denied a relationship with Jesus, he denied having any knowledge of Jesus whatsoever. And his denial echoes the words that were spoken in the, in the synagogue to a person who was being excommunicated. We no longer know you. In other words, we want nothing to do with you. So Peter the rock, which is what the name Peter means, had begun to crack. But it doesn't stop there. The action continues to rise. Scene number two. First accusation is leveled by a woman. Second accusation, and just a short, a short time later, is leveled by a man. Now, his charge not only connects Peter to Jesus, but to the disciples as well. And so you see there in verse 58, the man says, uh, you, you also were one of them, one of them. And Peter immediately and hotly replies, man, I am not. So at first, Peter denies being connected to Jesus. Now he denies any connection to those associated with Jesus and thereby betrays the entire ministry, uh, his ministry partners, uh, being a fisher of men. Peter effectively denies himself at this point. But it doesn't stop there. <laughs> the action continues to rise. And about an hour later, um, we come on to scene number three, and another accusation is leveled by another man in the group, but this one comes with 100% certainty, absolute confidence. He says, certainly this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. So Peter's been connected to Jesus and Jesus' followers by way of proximity. Now he's being connected to them based on his dialect. In other words, he's being profiled. That doesn't go over today, but that's what's happening here. The accuser is certain of this connection. And the man's certainty accentuates a couple of things. First of all, it accentuates Peter's guilt. See, Jewish law requires the testimony of two or three witnesses to establish a verdict. Deuteronomy chapter 19. Well, here we have three witnesses, got a man and a woman among them, all of whom have been used by speaking the truth, all of whom had been used by the adversary to sift Peter and find him wanting. 
at first anecdotally by each one, but together now legally. And second, this man's certainty accentuates the depth of Peter's guilt. Verse 33, Peter declared, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then in 59, the man declared, certainly this man was with him. And the way verse 59 is put together there uh, really mocks Peter's commitment spoken in verse 33. It makes his denial all the more grievous. So Peter replies to this third accusation with this faux incredulity, and according to Matthew and Mark, with uh, profanity, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And with that, we find ourselves at the climax. And uh, it's this instantaneous, concurrent swirl of events that begin in the second half of verse 60. Look there with me. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the words are coming out of his mouth, the rooster crowed. So he's, he's, he's speaking this denial, and in the background, and the Lord turned, it says, indicating that he knew what was going on. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Uh, David Garland says he looked straight at Peter, which means that Jesus was somewhere in the proximity of all of this. This denial is going on in his presence. He looked straight at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. He remembered what he'd forgotten or or he'd suppressed in the midst of it all. Needless to say, he was in the jaws of temptation, a very unlikely place from which to escape such a thing. And you've got to believe that in that moment, in that moment with (laughs) the rooster crowing, the words coming out of Peter's mouth, Jesus turning and looking right at Peter, he's sick. He's sick with grief. His denial complete. And Jesus' prophecy fulfilled. And um, some of us here know what that feels like. Don't you? Sin committed. Jaws of temptation loosening. Senses returning mind darting in a million different directions, wondering if there's some way to unwind all of this, untangle what I've just done. But there isn't. You know that feeling. And that's what Peter felt. And that's why in verse 62 we're told, and he went out and wept bitterly. 
And with that, the narrative moves on to the next account. That's a rotten climax <laughs> on which to end a story. But friends, that is the climax and the end of every story, even our own, apart from any hope in this life. It's a note on which every story ends. To be sure, we are Peter when it comes to sin. Gratefully, as they say in the NFL, upon further review, there's a ray of hope in this dark account. Because while we're all Peter when it comes to sin, we are Peter when it comes to being forgiven. The first ray of hope, the first sign pointing to Peter's forgiveness was when he went out and wept bitterly. Peter's tears tell us that when he was confronted by Christ, that look and remembered his word, spoken back in 31 through 34, it proves that his conscience hadn't been seared. His spirit was still tender. Peter's bitter tears reveal that he has not been embittered toward Christ. Sorrow for sin is always a good sign. In God's economy, it's the currency in which he likes to deal. You remember David's uh, epic transgression with Bathsheba. He says, a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. In fact, for sin, in Old Testament days, there were certain sacrifices. For a sin like David's, which is known as the sin of a high hand, there was no sufficient sacrifice. But for one, a broken and a contrite heart. I love the way Sky Peterson uh, lyrically puts it when she sings, Peter's weeping was proclaiming God's sure keeping of the promise that his kindness breaks the shadows. So Peter's bitter tears in that dark moment are a sign of hope, which leads us to the second sign of hope for Peter, and that is Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. Uh, Jesus prophesied that Peter would betray him three times, and he did. Jesus' word came true, but Jesus also prayer, prayerfully prophesied Peter's forgiveness and restoration, didn't he? That following Peter's denial, his faith would not fail. We see that back in verse 32. And it didn't. And that he would turn again and strengthen his brothers. Also in verse 32. And he did. In fact, those facts help us to understand that when Jesus turned and looked at Peter during his third denial, his gaze was not one of reprimand or reproach. You fool. I knew I couldn't count on you. You're a failure. You couldn't stand up under that. I knew you wouldn't get it right. You let me down. No. No. 
No, rather, Jesus' look was one of forgiveness and encouragement. Yes, Jesus would die, but he would die for that sin of denial and his resurrection, which he also prophesied and would come about, would free Peter, and not just free him, but free him to greater service. To be sure, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning, Psalm 30, verse 5. And Peter did go on to strengthen his brothers. Uh, His forgiveness led to fruitfulness. We see that as we get into uh, Luke's companion book of uh, Acts, and uh, uh, over a dozen ways, really, that he does this over the first five chapters in Acts. Well, let's bring this in for a landing. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. Good company. I, I remember. Where's John? I just saw John. There you are, John Rigsby. I remember your dad told me he went to visit a woman on her deathbed, old woman, and he asked her, what's your favorite Bible verse? And she said that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And your dad asked her, why that verse? And she said, because it reminds me, I'm not alone. (laughs) We're not alone. We're all sinners, but like Peter, we're not beyond God's grace. We're forgiven. We're sinners by birth. We're saved by death, but not our death, Jesus' death. And those who place their faith in him for the absolution of their sin are forgiven. All their sins are forgiven. Wouldn't it be nice to go home this morning certain that you have been absolved of all your sin. We sang about it uh, earlier. It is done. It is finished. My debt is not my own. To be certain that you're freed from the weight of its guilt and that you have a future and a hope. Peter was certain of all these things, even after his epic ugliness. So why don't you stick around, uh, have a chat with the one you came with this morning, one of the folks here on either side of the platform. They'd love to hear your heart and pray for you. Let's finish with prayer. Lord, we're all sinners. We confess that, but we are all ones for whom you have died, individually and together. We confess that, and I pray if there's one who um, will not embrace your forgiveness, that you would break down the walls in their heart and help them to come to faith, even today, even right now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.